Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Autumn Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Admiral Gary Ruffhead, an Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Game On! The U.S. and China in the Indo-Pacific, and it was recorded on October 19th, 2015. Now, I just got back from Beijing yesterday morning, and when I go to China, I take no connectivity with me for obvious reasons. So it uh, also afforded me a respite from the, circling, uh, the circular firing squads that have been taking place uh, routinely in this campaign season. But as we look out on the world today, I think all of us see a lot of disorder and disruption, especially in the Middle East. And there's no question in my mind that we are in for a pretty long run of that. I don't see it changing very much. I think that we are also entering a period of uh, questioning by our friends and allies in that region uh, about what our intentions are, what our strategy is, uh, and what our commitments in the future will be. I believe also that we're going to see some changes and disruption in Turkey uh, as it deals on the border of this area of ISIS. And then uh, in the Levant, are we setting up for another intifada is the great question that I have on my mind there. And then Iran enters into the picture. Uh, not only is it involved in all of this that's swirling around, but we've just implemented the nuclear deal. And how that plays out, how it's implemented, how it's complied with, in my view, is going to set the stage for the future of nuclear weapons in our lifetime and in the lifetime of our children. Russia is problematic, not just in the Ukraine, but also its expanded role in Syria. But tonight, as I said, I'm going to talk about China and why about China. Because I believe that even though those other areas are extraordinarily problematic and difficult and will challenge us in a significant way, the real strategic competition of the coming decades, indeed of the coming century, is the competition that will set up between the United States and China. The last transfer of strategic power took place between Great Britain and the U.S. And Corey has done some work on that. But it was relatively seamless. We came from similar foundations. We had similar legal, legal structures. We viewed trade and international commerce, international law, in very much the same way. Uh, that is not the scene that is setting up with China. Now, some may look at China today and the economic problem, and Eddie Lazier talked about their stock market, their devaluation, some of the capital flows that are going out, uh, significant uh, debt bubble that's starting to build, uh, their environmental problems that Marion and I were just talking about before I came up. Demography in China is a real problem because of how they have uh, put in place their one-child policy. They've tried to reverse it, but the beauty of demographics is they're pretty predictable and they have a long way to go to work they, their way out. But if you take all of those problems in there, it may be easy to say, well, they had a good run, and now it's, it, it will be different and we'll be in a good place. But the control, the reform effort, the broader agenda 
uh, the leader that they currently have in President Xi Jinping, uh, who has consolidated more power in a shorter period of time than any Chinese leader in recent history, I think causes us to have to look at this playing field a little bit different. But the fact of the matter is that going into the future, we are going to be interdependent with China. We want their markets. They will, regardless of how things play out, have a significant role in Asia. And so the term I use is game on. Uh, a competitive game, a game with a country with which we will be interdependent. And so how will it play out? And when I think about a game, I think in terms of time and space, the playing field, and the rule set that you use. So in the case of this strategic game, um, we have to be mindful of some of the temporal issues. We should understand, in my view, the broader context in which China and the US and other countries will be playing. And then I think we have to have a good sense of what are these rules, guidelines, behaviors that we can expect in the coming years. So with regard to time, <clears throat> you have to look at it, in my mind, both backwards and forwards. And I'd like to read an excerpt from a letter from a Navy captain. And I admit it to the fellows here, the National Security Fellows, I'm an extraordinarily parochial guy, so you'll forgive me when I read this. But um, the letter is, quote, at the time I was in hopes that all our difficulties with the Chinese government were at an end, but I regret now to say they renewed their acts of inhospitality in which they have been more inflexible. And that was written by a captain by the name of John Henley. He was the commanding officer of the USS Congress and he wrote that letter in 1819. So um, we have a bit of a history there. But it was also about that time, and this is something that I think needs to figure into the calculus with China, that they were about ready to enter this period of humiliation, of colonization. And, and this, this weighs very, very heavily on them. The burden of history is something that they carry. And in fact, when I was thinking about it, you know, we as Americans are really optimistic people. And when we, if we were to graph the future, I think we would walk up to the board, draw a horizontal line with an arrow going into the future. And I think when China graphs the same thing, indeed probably when Asia does it, they take and they draw that line and it's vertical going up. And then they start to tack all of the historical burdens on top of it. And that, in my view, inhibits their path into the future. The other thing I would say is that we uh, need a much longer view uh, with our relationship to China. And I go back to one of my first encounters with the PLA back in the, in the mid-90s. And we were there, one of the first uh, military delegations to go in and have some uh, for the time, pretty uh, substantive talks. And we were meeting with one of the senior leaders, a uh, general by the name of Liu Waqing, very weathered guy, had been on the march with Mao. And one of the areas we were interested in is we had some intelligence that they were aspiring to have an aircraft carrier. So the question was, do you want to have an aircraft carrier? And he looked at us and he said, yes, that would be very good. And so we said, when would you like to have one? 
And he thought for a moment and he said, we would like to have one in the short term. And then we asked, well, when is that? And I'll never forget it. He closed his eyes, squinted, rolled his head back, thought a moment, looked back at us, and he said, oh, 2050 would be good. <laughs> um, short term for us is when they serve the first course. And so I think you know, we, need to, we need to think in, in those terms. I also would say that we need to calibrate our timing, not to a calendar, but to the key leaders that are going to be playing on this playing field. Um, and I would start, the first is Prime Minister Abe from Japan. Now, Japan has had a lot of prime ministers lately, but uh, Shinzo Abe has done uh, something that no prime minister has done since the end of the Second World War. He has changed the interpretation on how their military will be used. I think it's a positive step. I welcome it. I, it brings Japan into a more normal role and relationship. It will allow them to support our forces in self-defense. It will allow them to go out and range more widely in areas that are of interest to them. How long Abe will be there will be determined on the, on the vagaries of Japanese politics, which have been pretty volatile. The next one is Xi Jinping, president of China. His time runs out in 2022. That's two years short of the end of the second term of the next president. He's going to be around for a while. As I said, he's consolidated more power, and he's going to be driving this agenda of his in a very powerful way. And then move to India with Prime Minister Modi. He'll be in power, likely. He aspires to be a two-term prime minister in India. Prime minister serves for five years. He'll be in power until 2024, the end of the second term of the next president of the United States. And if you go to Russia, which is a Pacific nation and will play in this uh, fabric a little bit more, you get to 2024, and Putin probably thinks he's just starting, and he'll still be playing hockey against the NFL guys. So we've got that to deal with. But I think it's important that we think in terms of, of this interaction of leaders that will take place and not a calendar that will be in, in play. The next area I would say is, is we have to look at the space differently. Too often now I think we talk about US-China, and in a way that the title of my remarks set me up to do that. But we have to have a broader view. A lot of people will talk about the Asia-Pacific region. In my mind, we have to talk about the Indo-Pacific region because the sea lanes that feed Asia, the sea lanes that feed the growing economies of Asia, cross the Indian Ocean. And that brings the Chinese interests into play. The change in legislation for Japan will bring Japan into play. And the Indians think that that ocean has been very appropriately named. It's theirs. And so we have this bigger piece that we have to deal with. The sea lanes are going to continue to bring the energy from the Middle East as much as we want renewables. Fossil fuels are going to fuel Asia for at least the next 60 years. Uh, trade, the reserves that are thought to be on the bottom in some of the critical areas, contentious areas, they're in play. And the one thing about Asia that we tend not to think about is their greatest source of protein is fish. 
and these fishing fields that uh, are out there are going to be hugely important, and guess what? They too are in contested waters. So that's, that will be in play. China is also going to be very worried about its periphery. It always has. The emperor that loses anything on the periphery is an emperor that's not remembered well in history. And their periphery is Taiwan, Tibet, Xinjiang province, where there's a, a large Muslim population, the South China Sea, and the East China Sea. These are areas that are hugely important to China, and they will protect that periphery a great deal. They've come up with a strategy called the Belt and Road, the Silk Road Economic Belt and the new Maritime Silk Road. It's an economic strategy, but it dives into the heart of Asia. The Silk Road Economic Belt goes right into Russia's sphere of influence. The Maritime Silk Road will create what the Chinese like to call a string of pearls, places where they can continue to uh, have good relationships, support for their navy as they move and protect their economic interests into the Asia or the Indo-Pacific region. On the East China Sea, South China Sea, obviously very topical. Um, the sea lanes are hugely important. The projected energy reserves are important. The fish are important. And strategically for China is something called the first island chain. And if you talk about you know, some of the strategists that deal with this, first island chain is hugely important. It runs from Japan to Taiwan to the Philippines and then south. And that's the area that China sees as its maritime periphery and why so much of their recent military development capability capacity is being designed to control out to that first maritime chain and also to give them the opportunity to punch through that. And then you can go out to the second island chain, which goes from Japan to Guam and then on down. And much of their strategy and much of their investments uh, and their doctrine are pushing out into that area. Of those two areas, right now the South China Sea is the most topical. But the East China Sea, quite frankly, worries me more. You have um, two countries that arguably have the most capable, modern, lethal military who really don't like one another very much, who are fighting over a rock or a collection of rocks in the East China Sea. Um, they have no communication paths, they have no protocols, and their leaders don't know one another. And you have very young, any of our fellows fighter pilots here? You have very young fighter pilots roaring around in the sky in very close proximity to one another. And they're very patriotic, they're very aggressive, and they think they're invincible. Uh, I've known in my past that's a recipe for disaster. And there's no way to de-escalate it if anything happens. And so I think it's hugely important that that be taken on. On the South China Sea, a lot of maritime claims in place, competing claims. Uh, the island building that China has undertaken, uh, quite frankly, is not legal. You cannot take something that is not uh, a land feature and build it up and then claim a territorial limit around it. And so this is something that, quite frankly, is going to be coming to a head, I think, in the next few weeks. In fact, uh, this past weekend, I spent quite a bit of time 
uh, talking with some Chinese about that. But uh, it, it will be about claims, and China is going to be very protective about the scheme that they have in place that's called a nine-dash line, which is a very unique way of carving out an ocean area saying this is ours. Sometimes you'll see it referred to as the cow's tongue because it looks like a big cow's tongue that hangs down. But they're very unclear as to exactly where the line is. They're very unclear as to what the expectations are within that, and they're also very unclear as to what freedom of navigation will be. But those maritime issues are going to play heavily. On the character of how this will play out, in my mind, the Chinese have kind of set the stage. It will be an economic and it will be a security competition. Uh, the Belt and Road I talked about, they've added the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which many countries have joined in. Only a handful, including us, are not part of it. Um, it, it is very popular and it is very well received among the countries that stand to benefit from the investment that China will be pushing into Central Asia. I think the other aspect of the character of this is, is Xi Jinping himself, uh, a pretty extraordinary Chinese leader, uh, an internationalist, very comfortable on the international stage, very mindful of the images and how that power is projected. Um, someone who is heavily committed to reform because he knows he's in a race against time. A leader who has taken on the corruption that is so uh, widespread in China but he's doing it. And there's always the question, you know, is the PLA with him? There is no question in my mind that the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, will do exactly what Xi Jinping wants them to do. I think we would, there are some who would like it otherwise, but I don't see that uh, in the cards. Uh, I was in Beijing a couple of weeks ago, and it was right after the stock market fell, right after they devalued their currency. It was shortly after the big explosion in Tianjin, and the president had yet to make any comment about it. It was just accepted that, you know, that, that's it. Very, very closely controlled information flow there. The other thing that's in play in China is just uh, the, the view of the Chinese people uh, toward other countries, a favorability rating. Pew just did the poll. The United States comes out at 44%. We rank 33rd out of 40 countries. Um, South Korea, there's been a lot of uh, improved relations between China, South Korea. They come out at 84%. Japan, uh, which is a pretty rough relationship with China. China just celebrated the, six, the 70th anniversary of the, the victory over the fascist war of aggression. And China, or I'm sorry, Japan, ranks out at 68%. So one of the things that's very interesting to watch is as United States popularity falls, Japan goes up. And as Japan's popularity falls, China, or the US popularity goes up. And so there's a little bit of manipulation there in my mind. They have a different view on several things. For example, cyber. And I know Amy Ziegler is going to do a panel on that tomorrow. But um, there's no question uh, that they are very active in that space. Uh, there's also no question that they operate with a different rule set than we do. And I think this is part of you know, how, how do we want the future to be? Uh, do we want protection of personal information? Do we want protection of intellectual property? 
I think a lot of it is how they look at this. You know, when we look at cybersecurity, it's pretty clear what we have in mind. When they look at cybersecurity, they tend to parse it into network security, which is very technical, and information security, and any information security is there to support their economic growth. So I'm not sure that philosophically they don't see that as fair game. Now, President Xi has made some commitments, but as you've seen in the news, the activity is still in play, and time will tell if there's any control over that. The only positive thing, I think, is that they now are beginning to feel the, the impact of loss of their own intellectual property, even internal to China. There's something uh, else that's taking place as Xi consolidates his power and, uh, and looks at how to control that society. There's a, a new piece of legislation that, uh, ironically, they've, they've allowed foreigners to look at in draft. Uh, this is, hasn't happened before, but it applies to Hoover and like institutions. It applies to um, uh, universities that have programs in China. Uh, and it's a, an NGO law. A lot of people think, well, it's just these NGOs that go do good works. But it really applies to think tanks. It applies to universities that run programs. And what it does is it, it, it requires uh, anyone in that category to have a, an official sponsor in China. It requires all the money that is spent on part, as part of the programs to pass through that, that agency. They call it the mother-in-law agency. I don't know why they do that. Um, they also uh, require that permission to be renewed annually. And so from the standpoint of a university or a think tank, that's a pretty big deal. But what it also means is most of those organizations are the people that are China's best friends. Uh, the panda huggers, as uh, somebody would call them. So, you know, to their credit, they've t allowed us to look at it. The security laws are different. Uh, tightening of, a press, uh, of, of the freedom of the press is even getting tighter than it was before. And the other thing that is uh, uh, very much against where they want to go is the very structure that has produced the security and the prosperity of Asia, and that's our alliance structure in the region. Uh, they would like to see that relegated to the dustbin of history. It's a Cold War relic. We don't need that. But as we look at our allies, it's important that we pay particular attention to them. I already talked about Japan. If it wasn't for Japan, we would not have the forces in the Western Pacific that we have. Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, and some Army. The legislative change, I think, will be helpful to us, but it will also uh, be a thorn in the side of China. With regard to the Republic of Korea, South Korea, their new relationship with China and the tension that, is, that exists between them and, and Japan uh, is going to be a problem and China is going to play that. Australia, uh, the southern anchor of our alliance relationships, hugely important. It's the only ally that we have that fronts on the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. It's the key to the Indo-Pacific in our alliance structure. But it's also a country that has strong, strong ties to us from a security perspective. They've shed blood with us in every major conflict over the last century. They are terrific allies. But they're also a country whose economy is extraordinarily intertwined with China. So how do we deal with it? How do we think our way through that is going to be important. The Philippines is in a bad spot. 
they suffer from a lot of these contentious claims and, um, uh, and they don't have the military uh, to, to be able to stand on their own. I think it's hugely tragic because we created it when they were under our wing and we really need to think how we want to do that. Japan is pursuing um, a better relationship with Thailand, another one of our allies, but because there was a coup there, we're kind of pushing them aside. China's stepping in to fill the vacuum and, uh, and Japan is trying to keep that from happening. I never talk about our structure in the Pacific without talking about the great country of Singapore. Punches well above its weight. We would not be able to operate as a Navy, as a military, without Singapore, without the access, without the hospitality, and without the support that we get them. And what about some people that are moving in a new direction? India is going to be hugely important. But I fear we're going to have this sense that we want to make them like an ally, like a Japan or an Australia. India will not do that. But we have to carve out a new relationship with India and a strategic relationship with India. It's going to be very, very hard for those of you who have done business there you know that it's not the easiest place. But I think in the 10 years of Modi, we're going to see that change dramatically. I believe we need to invest very heavily in that. And then Vietnam. They're the only country in the region that in recent years has bloodied China. And I'm not saying we should be picking for a fight, but they're a tough bunch. And, um, and they are pulling closer to us, but they're also buying submarines from the Russians. So you get this strange mix that's taking place. And some people, and I know there are probably some Vietnam vets here, are wondering, what about this relationship? And I recount a dinner I had several years ago, and we were talking about where the relationship could go. And one of the Vietnamese generals who had fought in Vietnam, um, and I think maybe there was a scotch or two involved in this discussion as the <laughs> night went on. But we, uh, we said, you know, this is terrific, but you know, isn't this hard for you that, you know, we, we fought a bitter war, uh, we killed each other, um, and, and we understand it has to be difficult. And he just kind of looked at us like we had three heads, and he said, you guys were the short war, don't worry about it. So they're fighters, and, uh, and I think when you look at friction and conflicts that's between China and Vietnam, they are going to be uh, tough, and I think they're going to be a great partner as we go forward. Interestingly, Japan and India are also um, increasing the level of investment. Uh, just this past week, Japan, India, the United States, major naval exercise in the Andaman Sea, which is part of this, uh, the sea lanes that stretch across the, the Indian Ocean. And then Russia. Uh, no one should say anything nice about Russia. <laughs> but, but, Russia is a player, and Russia and China in this new partnership, it is historically inconsistent. The long border that they have had with China, that Russia has had with China, has been a strategic nightmare. Russia is the junior partner in this arrangement. Russia's demographics are fading in the Far East. They will be losing. If nothing is done, they will be losing their Far East to China without any uh, uh, aggressive action at all. And so even though Putin is a problem and Russia is a problem, I think we've lost Putin for the long haul. There is no way that he will ever turn. 
but strategically in this part of the world, we need to think about Russia and the role that Russia plays. In a way, you almost have the, the great empires coming back again, China, Russia, Iran, uh, in this, in this Indo-Pacific region. Uh, so I think it's important that we need to keep our eyes, ears, and options open with, uh, with Russia. With regard to what should we do in the future, the idea of rebalancing is absolutely dead on. Um, and unfortunately, when we did the rebalance, and I never use the word pivot uh, that is often used in this, uh, because to me, a pivot, if I pivot to you, I'm pivoting away from somebody else. But we have to think differently about our level of effort in this critical strategic region. Military came on strong in the rebalancing because we can. We move quickly. Uh, when things needed to happen, we could demonstrate in, a, in the military way that we, that we did. Economically is where the majority of this game is going to be played out. And then, of course, the diplomatic component will blend the two of those together. And in my mind, as Eddie Lazier said today, the most important thing is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. If we um, put every effort into the relationship in the Indo-Pacific region, if we attend every conference, if we send the best diplomats, if we don't miss a beat on every nuanced custom with which we interact with them, and we don't do TPP, we're going to get a D. If we violate every protocol, every sensitivity, if we don't go to the meetings, if we maybe back off on some of the military activity, and we pull TPP across the goal line, we're going to get an A minus. It is that important. I really do believe TPP will set the tone of this game that's going to be played in Asia because our friends are looking at that. And it means, do we live by our business rules? Do we live by our intellectual property rights? Does it mean that the, the, the nature and the control and the flow of information and knowledge will be in a model that we believe in or a model that someone else believes in? Diplomatically, we have to really pay attention to the, uh, the alliance relationships that we have. And as George Schultz says, when it comes to diplomacy, it's like a garden. You have to tend it every day or the weeds will take over. And so we really have to pay attention. And when we talk about this China, US-China relationship, it's really about the allies, the friends, and it's about the periphery. We need to look at how do we want the relationship with India to play out. Uh, and it has to be a priority for our senior officials in state, commerce, and defense. And security preference, or security presence is going to be important. In Asia, you have to be there. You can't do it virtually. You can't uh, do it by saying we're strong in cyber and we're going to be sending unmanned vehicles all over, so you know, be comfortable. Presence matters in Asia. You have to go. And as Corey mentioned in her talk, you know, quite frankly, from a capability standpoint, from our technology, we're in a pretty darn good place, I say, for about the next 10 years. We have to increase those investments to be sure to stay ahead of the power curve. But the Pacific and the Indo-Pacific in particular is a huge place, and numbers matter. 
And so the forces you have to move around, to interact, to show interest, to respond to crises, really, really matter. And we don't have that conversation. We're enamored by a new jet fighter, a new submarine. We have to talk about all of the tools that we're going to need. And uh, as has been mentioned, the budget process and the discipline and the predictability is not allowing us to move in the direction where we have to go. We watch the budgets very carefully, those of us that are still interested in national security issues. But let me tell you, when you go to Asia, they will take you to school on what is in our budget because they study it to the most minute detail. Because at the end of the day, a military is what it buys. It's not what you say you want it to be, it's what you buy and what you provide to the young people that are gonna go out and do the job. So, you know, as I, as I look to the future, the keys are we've got to have the long view. We have to accept the fact that China and the U.S. will be in, in, interdependent. We have to think in terms of this broader Indo-Pacific playing field and some of the key countries that are gonna be out there. And for us to succeed, we have to tie those together, view the whole field, uh, and we have to go there and be there um, and that is what the big challenge will be for whatever administration comes in. And I think it's really unfortunate that those are the types of discussions that are absent in the political landscape today. It's a serious issue. Um, it, 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 it really is the next strategic competition. And again, I would like to thank Hoover for this opportunity. And I would also like to add uh, for those here who have made the Washington dimension of Hoover a little bit better, not a little bit better, a heck of a lot better. Uh, I thank you for that because it's there that the, the intellectual capital that exists in Hoover that draws from Stanford can really be brought to bear in a very positive way to influence people that are trying to get their heads around this. So for all of you who have made that happen, I thank you and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.